We're reading today from Luke 10, verses 25 to 37, the voice translation. Just then, a scholar of the Hebrew scriptures tried to trap Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to experience the eternal life? What is written in the Hebrew scriptures? How do you interpret their answer to your question? You shall love, love the eternal one, your God, with everything you have, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Perfect. Your answer is correct. Follow these commands and you will live. The scholar was frustrated by this response because he was hoping to make himself appear smarter than Jesus. Ah, but who is my neighbor? This fellow was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho when some robbers mugged him. They took his clothes and beat him to a pulp and left him naked and bleeding in critical condition. By chance, a priest was going down that same road, and when he saw the wounded man, he crossed over to the other side and passed by. Then a Levite who was on his way to assist in the temple also came and saw the victim lying there, and he too kept his distance. Then a despised Samaritan journeyed by. When he saw the poor fellow, he felt compassion for him. The Samaritan went over him, stopped the bleeding, and applied some first aid, and then put the poor fellow on his donkey. He brought the man to an inn and cared for him through the night. The next day, the Samaritan took out some money, two days' wages to be exact, and paid the innkeeper, saying, Please take care of this fellow, and if this isn't enough, I'll repay you the next time I pass through. Which of these three provided himself a neighbor to the man who had been mugged by the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him. Well then, go and behave like that Samaritan. This parable is kind of preaching to the choir. I mean, I feel like this is foundational to who Imago is, is reaching out to those in need, those that are the others in society, the marginalized, the forgotten abouts. Um, and I feel like that Imago, throughout its history, has tried to live into that as well as they could, as well as we can. But there's a, there's a couple of things that I want us to see through this parable today. And before I, before I share that with you, let me just say this. There's some reasons that I wanted us to study the parables through a Jewish lens in our Lenten season, but I'll, I'll, carry, I'll give you a couple of them. One, just to hear the familiar stories with a different interpretation. A lot of us have heard these in the same way over and over again. And I would like to kind of shake us up out of that a little bit and get another little spin on it. But second of all would like for us to see how in some ways some of our interpretations in these parables have a, a thread of anti-Semitism anti-Semitism in them. And I think it would be helpful for us to see that. It has been helpful for me, and I would not have consciously said that, but studying it through a Jewish lens has allowed me to see that there has been some uh, anti-Semitism in the way that I've been taught these things. And hopefully, seeing them through this lens will help us to see that, um, that anti-Semitism. Maybe we can challenge it in the future. Our thinking, as Richard Rohr says, is 
that primarily, that binary way of thinking, either or, right? Uh, black, white, good, bad, right, wrong, dark, light. If there's a good guy, there must be a bad guy. If there's a white hat, there must be a black hat. That's right. And it's hard for us to sometimes comprehend the grays of life. Those are a little bit more difficult. Um, and that dualistic thinking that we have, it's been there from the very beginning. In Genesis 1 through 2, God made light and God made dark. God made sun and God made, God made male and God made female. Now, the text does not say that God also created the dawn, the dust, the twilight, or mid-morning when the temperature is cooler, or late afternoon when it's warmer, and yet we know that God made those two. And even though the text does not say it, we get it. We get it. The dusk was made by God. The text does not tell us about intersex humans. God tells us of male, female. But we know that sometimes 100% male and 100% female just does not happen, if ever, and we know that God created these, human, these humans too. That black and white thinking can only take us so far. And we miss the nuance and the context. And we risk losing sight of the truth of things if we just see it either or. Black, white. There's always more to the story than what is on the page. And so it goes with the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of you probably knew this already, but I did not that Samaritans are Jewish people. I, I think I thought, maybe somebody told me that, that they were, I don't remember, but I think that in my head I always thought that they were another race, another ethnicity, ethnicity or a group of people that the Gent, like the Gentiles, who the Jewish people didn't like, and that whole Jews didn't like the Gentiles, that thing has, uh, that binary way of thinking about that has not done us any favors either. But the story of the Samaritans is a good one. So I want to try to explain this. I was going to use my uh, trusty whiteboard, but I'm not going to because of back issues. We're just going to do this. So just try to stay with me, okay? I hope I can do this justice. So I want to give you a little bit of a synopsis of the story of the Samaritans. Where do they come from? So King Jeroboam was king in 931 BCE to 910 BCE, and he succeeded King Solomon. When King Jeroboam came upon the scene, the tribes of Israel split in two distinct ways. You had uh, the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. Now, the kingdom in the north had Samaria as its capital, and the kingdom in the south had Jerusalem as its capital. Now, the northern king of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BCE, and the northern king kingdom was exiled but there were some people that were allowed to remain. And those that were allowed to stay in that northern kingdom, they intermingled with the Assyrians. And this is where their assimilation began, the northern kingdom that were left behind. And those Jewish people that were left behind after the Assyrians conquered them were known as the Samaritans. Now the southern kingdom became known as Judah or Judeans and eventually Jews and they are siblings of the Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans both claim descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they became bitter rivals. The southern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, would retain a king from the Davidic line. 
there would be a Davidic king on the throne. The northern kingdom, the Sumerians, they had the weird kings. You have to go look that up, but they were weird. They were not Davidic. They were different. They were other. But the southerners considered themselves the real Jews. Do you, can you see why they would think that? Because they had the Davidic line. Now, Josephus, that famous Jewish historian of the first century, says that Samaritans claimed to be Jews when the times were good. When they were prospering, the Samaritans, oh, I'm a Jew too, I'm a Jew. I'm not just a Samaritan, I'm a Jew too. But when times were bad, I don't know those people. Never met them. Who? Jew who? I'm a Samaritan, not a Jew. You can kind of see why the southern Jews were not too big fans of the northern Jews. I mean, you wouldn't like that either, would you? I mean, you're loyal to your team, right? Nobody likes a fair-weather friend. The Samaritans even built their own temple on Mount... Uh, hold on. On Mount Jerusalem. And just as an aside, Samaritans still worship and celebrate their Passover sacrifice at the place of Mount Jerusalem, in spite of the site of their original temple. So the southern kingdom comes back from exile, eventually from the Babylonians, to build their own. But the northern kingdom could care less. You're on your own. Do your own thing. And so in 165 BCE, there was a revolt from the Judeans against Antiochus Epiphanes, if you read the Left Behind novels, you know what that means. The Judeans, the southern kingdom, asked for help from their brothers and sisters, the Samaritans, but their siblings refused to fight. They refused to help them in this revolt. Again, you can understand why they didn't like them so much. As time wore on, their disagreements involved the correct understanding of the Torah, the correct lineage lineage. lineage a priesthood, the right form of worship at the right location. They argued over who was right and who was not. Does that kind of infighting sound familiar? Who has the best interpretation? Is it complementarianism or egalitarianism? Is it transubstantiation or symbolism? Is it King James or the NIV? Is it substitutionary atonement or Christus victor? Is it the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed? Who's right and who's wrong? Who's in, who's out? Or as in our story today, who can I not treat as my neighbor? So let's get to our passage. Verse 25 says, Then a scholar of the Hebrew Scriptures tried to trap Jesus. The scholar asked, Teacher, what must I do to experience the eternal life? Now, in other translations, you will read this word scholar as lawyer. So for our purposes, I'm going to use the word lawyer. Either way, the guy's smart. He's educated. He's privileged. He's not poor. Okay, this is, this is, this is you know, this is the guy. Luke is telling us that this man, by describing him as a lawyer, as a scholar, he's privileged. He's got some money in the bank. And Luke also wants us to know that this man, this lawyer, stands in opposition to Jesus. How does he do that? Because he says the lawyer uses this, the word test. The lawyer wants to test Jesus. It's the same word that Satan uses when he takes Jesus to the wilderness and tests him there. Right away, Luke wants us to know that this is the bad guy. This guy has a black hat. You should know that right off the bat. There's no gray in this guy's life. He's bad. Black hat, 
the lawyer. That's who he is. We also should consider that the lawyer calls Jesus by the, by the term teacher, which is a term of respect, but in this case, it's a little bit less than respect because Luke thinks Jesus should always be addressed as Lord. So for the fact that the lawyer called him teacher instead of Lord, Luke's telling us he really wasn't on the same page as us. He didn't really have it all right. And then the lawyer wants to know what can he do to inherit eternal life, which is a trick question because the lawyer would have known that this was not a commodity to be inherited but a gift freely given. So Jesus answers him with a question. What is written in the Hebrew Scriptures? How do you interpret their answer to your question? And he says, you shall love Love the eternal one, your God, with everything you have, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, perfect. Your answer is correct. Follow these commands and you will live. Well, the guy, the lawyer could have ended it right there, right? He could have said, okay, that's, that's what we do. Moving on. But he didn't. The lawyer was frustrated by this response because he was hoping to make himself appear smarter than Jesus. I hope you're getting a sense of Luke doesn't like this guy very much. Still got that black hat on. And the scholar says, ah, but who is my neighbor? Robert Tannehill says the word neighbor means one who is near. That makes sense. And so this question <clears throat> from the lawyer could be translated, who is close enough to me that I must respond with love? Or who must I love? But the lawyer would have known the Hebrew scripture said in Leviticus, when an alien resides with you in your land, you should not oppress the alien. The alien resides, who resides with you will be to you as a citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The Hebrew scriptures were replete with commandments to the Jewish people. You are to love your neighbor. The lawyer, according to Amy Jill Levine, is asking, asking a boundary question. Or who is not my neighbor? Now, as Protestants, we have been asked to see this as a duh question. Like, our neighbor's everybody. Why can't you see that? Of course it's everybody. The problem for the lawyer is that he does not see what Jesus is trying to teach him. It's not that he asked the question of who is my neighbor. It's a perfectly legitimate legal question. As Americans, we have certain rights, right? If I, I'm going, hopefully, Lord willing, I'm going to France for my honeymoon in May, there will be things there that I'm not allowed to do. I can't vote in their election if they have an election in May. If somebody from France comes to America, they can't vote in our election. We have rights that are just for us because we are Americans. They are people from France. What are they called? Frenchmen? French women? What are they called? I don't know, something like that. Anyway. But Jesus does not blast the lawyer for his question. He decides he'll teach him instead. The question from, a law, from the lawyer was a legal one, and it has merit. Who has rights and who doesn't? I'm confused. So maybe that black hat that we've put on this lawyer is more dark gray. The lawyer wants to know where the boundary lines fall. And Jesus wants him to see that there shouldn't be a boundary at all. And so he tells the story. This fellow was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho when some robbers mugged him. 
They took his clothes, beat him to a pulp, and left him naked and bleeding and in critical condition. By chance, the priest was going down the same road, and when he saw the wounded man, he crossed over to the other side and passed by. Then a Levite, who was on his way to assist in the temple, also came and saw the victim lying there, and he too kept his distance. Now keep in mind, the lawyer that's asking this question, he's not alone, he's in a crowd. At the very least, the disciples are there. And so Jesus tells the story of a man who falls into the hands of robbers and is left for dead. Now, the people that would have heard this parable, kind of like what we probably do, would have immediately resonated with the man who's in the ditch, right? We don't like to think of ourselves as robbers. We don't like to think of ourselves as, as a priest and a Levite who would ignore a person in need. We want to believe that we have the white hat on and that we would help and we would do the right thing. We could interpret these passages as the priest and the Levite left the man to die in the ditch because of ritual impurity. That's what I was taught to, uh, how I was taught to interpret this passage, that they didn't know if he was dead or alive, so touching him could be a problem because he would, could be a corpse, and then they would be ritually unclean, and they would need to purify themselves. But Amy Jill Levine says, maybe not so much. The priest and the Levite are going down the road. Jerusalem's on a hill where the temple is. And so the people go up to offer their sacrifices and prayers. On the way to the temple, you go up. That's where you perform your ritually, uh, your, your impurity, your impurity uh, rituals. They're coming back from the temple. They're not that worried about being unclean. And besides that, the Torah teaches them that if that were the case, their responsibility is to bury the guy. Levine quotes uh, MLK Jr. The best explanation for this is this, and I do like what he says. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible these men were afraid. And so the first question that the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? King went on. If I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? King then went to Memphis and there he was assassinated. There are bandits on the road. The fact that the priest and the Levite did not stop to help the man would have surprised the listeners. It's not that they would have been prejudiced to the point that they wouldn't help someone. It would have surprised them because they were supposed to stop and help people. They'd been told that throughout their whole Hebrew scriptures. And here's also what um, Luke's audience would have heard that day. In the Jewish tradition, uh, a story is told in categories of three when you're dealing with three different kind of people, when you're dealing with an object lesson or a parable. So the categories are A, a Jew who is either a priest, descended from Aaron, a Levite, descended from Levi, or an Israelite, descended from Jacob's other sons. So there would be the Jew, the Levite, and the Israelite. So the people there that day... We've heard about the Jew, we've heard about the uh, Jew and we, the priest, and we've heard about the Levite, so that they're, well, they're waiting on the third. The audience was set up to hear about this third person, and they're expecting to hear, oh, the Israelite, of course, the Israelite. 
But that's not what Jesus says. Then a despised Samaritan journeyed by. They had to have been shocked. What? A Samaritan? It's a Samaritan. Their enemy. They've hated him for years and years and years and years. The unthinkable one. Levine likens it to telling a story of Larry, Moe, and Curly. For those of you that don't know about Larry, Moe, and Curly, we'll talk about it after church. (laughs) Man, you're really young if you don't know who that is. She tells the story that it would be like if you're telling a story about Larry, Larry, Moe, and Curly, you would say Larry, Moe, and Osama bin Laden. You'd be like, what? What's the story? Or... If you're describing the Trinity and you say, instead of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you say Father, Son, and Satan. What? That doesn't work, right? That's not the expectation. You messed me up. And when he saw the fella, the Samaritan felt compassion for him. He went over to him, stopped the bleeding, applied some first aid, and put the poor fella on his donkey. He brought the man to an inn and he cared for him through the night. The word here in the NIV, they use the word pity or compassion and other, in this translation. There is compassion that we can feel where we feel sorry for somebody, right? But there's not a thing we can do about it. That, that's a kind of compassion. We feel really bad. That really shouldn't be that way. I feel bad. I'm going to pray. But there's not really anything I can do about it. This is not that type of compassion. This is on another level of compassion. This is a compassion that does. This is a compassion that just does not feel, but it does something about it. In the message, it says, when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disaffecting and bandaging his wounds. Then lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. When I was 15 years old... I'd just gotten my driver's license, and um, my dad had bought me this little hatchback, little bitty car. I can't remember what it was. I'll remember afterwards. I'm not remembering right this moment. But it had, like, bucket seats and just a little tiny car. And so I'd only had it for 10 days, and I was going to school one morning. And uh, my brother, who was four years younger than me, he wanted to ride with me to school that morning. I was like, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? Gross. You can ride the bus. So I made him ride the bus. And so as I'm going to school that morning, it was very, very foggy. Well, I'd not had any experience driving in fog. And I pull out into the the main thoroughfare through Belmont. Thoroughfare is a funny word through Belmont, but I mean, it's just a street. (laughs) Trying to make it sound fancy, and it's not. So I pull out into the highway, and my car stops in that lane. And I get just trying to get to that other lane, my car stops in this lane. I'm like, oh, no, no. So I'm freaking out. I cannot see anything around me. What I did not know was there was a log truck headed straight for me. I didn't see it. I didn't hear it honking because I was too frustrated trying to get my car started and out of the road. Got the car started and got pulled up into this other lane, and the log truck swiped me. My car went flying. And when the car stopped, I was in the ditch, and I was in the back seat. No seatbelt. I did not know what had hit me. I just knew something bad had happened. I crawled back into the front seat, cut myself up pretty good. I was having trouble breathing, panicking. I'm 15, okay? 
I get out of the car and I'm like, uh, what's wrong? Where I say that I'm bleeding in different places, but I don't know exactly what's going on. By this time, there's, there's people around. They've all stopped. They just saw this little bitty car get smashed by a log truck. So they all stop. And I see these people standing around just like calling 911 or whatever they're doing. They're nowhere near me. And I hear somebody say, don't touch her, don't touch her. You can't touch her. You've got to wait for the ambulance. Don't touch her. And I'm just on the ground screaming for my mother, crying, wailing, screaming. Somebody, I need my mother. My mother literally worked pretty much across the street, so I knew she was close. And it's Belmont, so everybody knew where she worked. Everybody knew who I was. I'm like, somebody go get my mother. This one man, his name was, his last name was Pesetti. I don't remember his first name. I went to school with his son, Vince, but I don't remember Mr. Pesetti's first name. I heard him say, I know we're not supposed to touch people in an accident, but this little girl's crying for her mama, and I'm not going to stand here and let her watch her cry. And he got down on the road, with, on the side of the road with me, and just held me, and just stroked my back. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Your mama's coming. Your mama, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's that kind of compassion. It's that kind of, that Pesetti compassion. It's willing to get some blood on their clothes. Willing to get a little dirty willing to lose some time off of their day. Obviously, I turned out okay, but it just so happened that my father was a log truck driver at the time, and so he started hearing on the CB radio, there was a little bitty car in Belmont that was hit by a log truck. We don't know what, and of course, they described the car. My dad realizes that's me and knows nothing else. It was a day, what can I say? Thankfully, my brother did not ride with me because the entire passenger side of my car was at the center of my car. It was crushed in. It's Pesetti kind of compassion. This Samaritan, he did something about it. He did not wait for someone else to do it. He did not consult his watch and say, I got to be at work. He just did it. The next day, the Samaritan took out some money two days' wages to be exact, and paid the innkeeper, saying, please take care of this fellow, and if this isn't enough, I'll repay you the next time I pass through. Not only does the Samaritan take care of the guy, but there is a thinly veiled threat in that to that innkeeper. I'm, ta I'm giving you money to take care of this guy. I'll be back to make sure that's what you do. Make sure you did it. I'm coming back to check on you. He wanted to be sure the welfare of this man was in good hands. Make sure you treat my friend kindly or else. This phrase, let me back up. Jesus asked the, the, the lawyer, which of these three proved himself a neighbor to the man who had been mugged by the robbers? The lawyer says the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said, well, go and behave like that Samaritan. Margaret Thatcher is quoted as saying, no one would remember the Good Samaritan if he only had good intentions. He had money as well. I was sharing this quote with my fiance, who is a political science professor. He did not believe me that Margaret Thatcher said that. <laughs> she did, not in the nicest of context, though. I'll let you look that up on your own, but she did say it. One of the lessons for this first century Jewish audience and Gentile audience is, 
The Samaritans may be enemies, but even enemies can do the right thing. And even enemies can become friends. And the cycle of violence can be broken. The listeners to this parable, the Good Samaritan, they didn't need a sermon on how to treat their neighbors. They knew already. They knew. It was all over their scriptures. They didn't need it. So it's probably not the lesson here. Jesus was aiming for something much deeper than just being good to your neighbors. Our enemies are more than one-dimensional. All of us have a story about a particular person who did not do us right, who did us wrong, who did us dirty. You've seen probably the meme on Facebook, and that person, whoever that person is, your mama still don't speak to them, that kind of thing. That person. That person, they did you wrong. And you're probably not going to invite them to your wedding. Doggone it. But then you'll meet somebody along the way, and they know this person too, and they only have glowing reviews to say about this person. And you're standing there going, what are you talking about? This person is not that good. Are you kidding me? But hopefully in that moment, we all have the opportunity to see another side to that person. None of us are all bad. None of us are all good. None of the people we don't like are all bad. There's goodness there, too. Hopefully that can open up our hearts a little bit to maybe forgive that person, to see that person less good or bad and just human, flawed, broken, made in the image of God, but flawed just like us, just like me. That person we have a hard time loving because they are a Trump supporter or a Biden supporter, because they interpret the Bible differently from us and so on. They are way more complex than who they voted for. We may not want to be best buddies with them, but we can try to see them for who they are. Someone beloved, made in the image of God, made in the Imago Dei, underneath that binary label of Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative, or fundamentalist, or activist, beyond that. And so Jesus does not answer the lawyer's question of who is my neighbor. He doesn't answer it. And the lawyer cannot even say the Samaritan. Did you notice that in the text? The lawyer couldn't say the Samaritan. Sometimes those people that did us wrong, it's hard just to say their name without... That's okay. But he did say, the one who showed mercy, that's who the one that's right. Religious scholar Frederick Danker says, Divine mercy does not ask the worth of the recipient, it only sees the need. Which Levine says, this is a good summary of the parable, but it is not sufficient. She said, it's the, it is one thing to learn that the command to love encompasses anyone who is in need, even the outsider or the enemy. It is far more disturbing to have to acknowledge that the outsider or enemy may be more quick to show love than those who are certainly fellow insiders. Sarah Bessie, I think I've quoted this to you before. She asked us, if you are having trouble discerning your enemy, just ask yourself this one question, who is on the other side of my empathy? Who is on the other side of my compassion, my sensitivity, my understanding? 
whoever that person is, she encourages us to tell a better story about that person. They're not all bad. They're just not. Will you pray with me? God, it's hard to admit sometimes that that sometimes the Samaritan is the good guy. We don't like that about ourselves, but it's true. God, help us to see ourselves clearly and honestly on this day. Not to shame, not to feel bad, not to feel defeated, but to just have a real honest assessment of where we are, of how we see people around us. And God, I pray that you would give us fresh eyes to see people differently. as more than a black hat or a white hat. God, give us vision to see the Mago Day in everyone. In Jesus' name, amen.